Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public informed during this pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, in partnership with the Society for Hospital Medicine, we'll be discussing the importance of proper mental health resources and support services for frontline healthcare professionals battling COVID-19. To discuss this, our IDSA member, Dr. Tom Feketa with Temple University, Dr. Eric Way with Elmhurst Hospital, and Dr. Mark Rudolph with Sound Physicians. Thank you all for being with me. Dr. Rudolph, let's start with you. Many frontline healthcare workers have been fighting this pandemic for several months with few, if any, breaks. Can you share what you're seeing among your colleagues or even experiencing yourself and what practices are in place to help keep these clinicians successful and help them manage burnout. You know, the, the whole question of burnout uh, is is obviously incredibly important. And I just want to point out that a lot of people are experiencing different kinds of stress that may be a run-up to burnout, but may be more manageable. And so that stress comes from a lot of different places. And so what we're seeing across our organization and across the, the, the country is that people are experiencing stress for different reasons. Not everybody has been inundated with COVID patients since day one. Obviously, everybody's dealing with the, the PPE conundrum as well as uncertainties around managing patients, but there have been parts of the country where there were not significant volumes of COVID patients, and there was a lot of anxiety and fear related to maintaining jobs and that sort of thing. So first and foremost, what we are trying to do for our people is to let them know, among other things, that their jobs are safe, uh, and for those people that are in areas that are really hard hit, we're doing our very best to ensure that those clinicians are able to have the days off that are, are scheduled for them so that they can have time away from this incredibly highly charged environment. And then I think there are three big buckets of things that are, are incredibly important for any organization to do. One is information, sharing the information that people need around what success looks like, around what the proper clinical treatment is, and also creating the right forums for communication. In particular, uh, one of the things we're focusing on are huddles so that there's real-time two-way communication about what's happening right now, you know, rather than the traditional once-a-month medical staff meetings. We're also doing clinical webinars to help promote best practice and to, to just keep hope for the future going when it comes to vaccines and other therapeutics. The next big bucket is support. And so providing individualized plans for clinicians who have tested positive, making sure they know that they won't lose income. We're also allowing people to use their CME reimbursement funds to buy their own personal clinical gear like scrubs, shoes, additional PPE if they want it so that they can feel as comfortable as possible on, on the job. We also have started a peer support program and are very aggressively promoting mental health resources. And just the last thing that I'll mention is that I think it's incredibly important to reframe what overall success means. So many people are struggling with the inability to help patients or, or cure patients. And that is just reality of, of the pandemic and this illness. And we need to let people know that the work they're doing, just showing up every day, the risks that they're taking every day, that that's all that anybody can ask of them. And, and you know what? You're doing a great job of it right now. Excellent points, Dr. Rudolph. Thank you for bringing those up. Dr. Wei, turning to you now, how important is it for healthcare facility leaders to address the toll 
This is taking on their employees and make sure their employees have strong coping strategies. Yeah, I don't think we can understate the the importance here. Like it was critically important even before uh, this COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, We were seeing a crisis in the House of Medicine where rising numbers of deaths by suicide in our providers, physicians, attending physicians, residents, as well as nurses and, and other staff. And so we already had a crisis on our hands. And then we add on this unprecedented global pandemic on top of that. A lot of the things that Dr. Rudolph talked about, just feeling like we didn't have the answers that we usually have. You, you diagnose uh, a problem, you give the antidote and people get better. Uh, but that was not the case uh, with, with COVID-19. Honestly, like this is what us as leaders in, in healthcare facilities are tasked with, taking care of, of our own. You know, somebody who feels supported by their, their facility, by the leadership, they are emotionally, psychologically well, they're resilient, they're going to be able to do their jobs better and, and provide higher quality, safer patient care uh, and be able to do it for a longer time. And uh, J.W. Marriott said a while ago, um, you take care of your employees, your employees will take care of your customers and the business will take care of itself. Um, I think that's even more true in healthcare. Our number one priority uh, should be the entire well-being of our staff, you know, those who look to us to, to lead them. So incredibly important. Thank you, Dr. Wei. Dr. Fekita, I want to talk about a huge unspoken factor that poses a barrier to supportive services for clinicians on the front lines, and that is the stigma associated with mental health in general and the shame or embarrassment that it brings to those dealing with it, most especially those in the medical field who are expected to have superhuman strength and resilience. How can we combat this? I'm glad you asked that question. You know, when I meet with people now in my role as chair of medicine, my first question is, how are you doing? And how's your mental health? I wouldn't have been asking that question a year ago, even though it was also very important. As Dr. Wei pointed out, we've had a kind of a crisis in medicine now for so long, we've sort of forgotten it's a crisis. But things have really gotten different in the last nine months, and I think we have to be aware of that. When I talk to people who are doing okay, Everyone says, yes, they're having some struggles, and yes, they're trying to adapt, but they are getting there one way or the other. People say they're doing fine. I can sometimes tell they're just not doing so well, and then I have to push a bit because doctors in particular are very shy and very embarrassed about admitting any kind of weakness or frailty. And this has been a really tough patch, not just at work, but in home life, personal life, taking care of children. These are all things that we aren't supposed to be talking about, but they have a great impact, not only on our lives at work, but also the safety of our patients and our learners. So I get people to try to open up a little bit and to admit that we're all of us having some struggles. And I think that's the beginning of a conversation. It's not the end, but at least it's the beginning. Thank you, Dr. Fekita. Medical and nursing licensing boards often ask for applicants to release entire histories of mental health treatment. The fear of being rejected or having their licenses limited based on results is another barrier to proper supportive health care. What can be done, Dr. Rudolph, to relegate that action to extreme and specific cases only? Yeah, this is a really important issue. The the system for addressing mental health of health care providers in this way is really antiquated. I mean, the reality is everybody's mental health needs care and attention. It doesn't matter what you do. And, and there's, there's not an implication of mental illness just by virtue of bringing up mental health. 
unfortunately, there has been research done in this area that has shown that physicians are very reluctant to seek formal medical care for treatment of mental health conditions because they're concerned about the, the repercussions to their medical licensure. And if you look at the applications for medical licensure across the country, as the, the folks at the Mayo Clinic who have done a tremendous amount of the research in the, the burnout space have uh, evaluated these forms and shown that only about a third of them either ignore mental health issues or ask about it in a way that uh, addresses its functional impact. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the times these forms just ask for you to list any kind of mental health history and the, you know, the fear is that it's going to be held against you. The good news is that since about 2018, the AMA has had policies in place to encourage the, the state medical boards to change the nature of the questions that are on the applications. And additionally, one of the positive uh, results of some of the unfortunate outcomes that we've seen in the last eight or nine months. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of the, the, the very unfortunate suicide of Dr. Lorna Breen, an emergency medicine physician in New York, is that there is an act that a couple of senators have put in place trying to launch a national campaign that's going to both encourage physicians to seek mental health care, but is going to end up putting a lot of pressure on state medical boards to alter the content of those, those documents that ask physicians to disclose this information. So I think we're going to see a lot of change in this area as a result of the pandemic. This is Eric. You know, not only do I agree 100% with Dr. Rudolph, and, and glad to hear um, that there may be solutions coming down that will, will change the medical board's um, applications. But this, just building upon that, this fear is real. Um, I was recently on a resident well-being committee uh, meeting um, in our system, and the residents brought it up as their number one barrier for, for seeking out uh, mental health treatment. Uh, is that, right, it's, it's in their minds jeopardizing everything that they've been working so hard uh, for to, to get to this point in, in training and, and soon to be applying for their medical licenses. And some of the things that we've done, you know, while we're, you know, hoping and advocating for, for change uh, that needs to happen is what can we do that uh, allows some of this support um, to happen without having to, them having to answer yes uh, on that question. And so our Helping Healers Heal, uh, or H3 program is around peer support. And so having peers provide support to each other does not rise to the level of needing to check the box yes on that medical license application. We are implementing a battle buddy program initiative uh, to pair up uh, people. And we learned this from our Department of Defense partners who were here in the spring to help New York City. Uh, so there's still a lot of things that we can do to support our staff and allow support to happen uh, in an organic way that doesn't force them to check yes on that box. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Thank you, doctors. You both make excellent points. Dr. Wei, I'd like to stick with you. Do you think enough resources are widely available to healthcare professionals to assist them in properly monitoring and dealing with stress and anxiety levels? The, the obvious answer here is, is no, uh, but we're certainly better than we were 10 years ago and even better than where we were, you know, 
one to two years ago. But I think all of us uh, on this podcast would say that we have a long way to go to be able to personalize and customize it to each healthcare worker, depending on their needs. Uh, we're not there yet. Uh, and we've touched on this a bit. Um, there is a culture uh, in the House of Medicine that right, you almost have to go through a hazing as, as part of your orientation or your training to be tough enough. To, to work in healthcare, what people in different industries get to speak about, you know, over dinner conversations, a lot of the things that we see and 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 do in our day to day in the hospital is not okay to, to talk about over dinner, uh, unless you're trying to gross out your family and, and friends. But it also means that it is a lot of people suffering on their own, right? Trying to process and, and heal from day in day out emotional and psychological trauma. We tend to bottle it up. We tend to process it, rationalize it, and, and try to you know do it on our own. And so there is this culture and this stigma that we're trying to overcome. We give our healing powers to our, our patients and their families freely, and their families freely all day long. But when it came to each other, when it came to ourselves, um, it was quite a different story. And so I think tackling the, the stigma of, of saying, you know, that case really affected me or this block you know, that I've been working on, seems like everyone I've been taking care of has, has passed away. That's really affecting me. And uh, I need to talk to somebody about it. That's what we're chipping away at. But we do need to, to build upon kind of the foundations, um, some of the things that, that Dr. Rudolph outlined that his system's doing our H3 program, the 4U team at University of Missouri, build upon these programs so that it is universal across of all, all of healthcare but also to appropriately resource them so that it can be customized, right? If I need to speak to a certain person of the, the same, you know, religion or same discipline, you know, whatever, whatever would make the person who's suffering most comfortable in reaching out for help and, and, and being engaged in, in support, that's the goal. That's what we need to get to. And I would just pick up on something that Dr. Wei mentioned that really resonates with me, which is this idea of, of not suffering alone or encouraging people not to suffer alone, because that unfortunately is the, the culture of medicine. It's a culture that we all kind of grew up in and it's, it's simply not healthy. And it doesn't matter if it has to do, you know, if the experiences that are hard for us, if they're direct patient experiences that we feel awkward about, or maybe it's just something in the system that's really frustrating us. We have a tendency to not say anything about it and put up with it, or just, you know, we'll just sort of vent to one another, as opposed to talking to folks who can really lend an ear or even might be able to help us work together on a solution to the problem. And um, that ends up being the source ultimately, you know, in an additive fashion uh, where you arrive at a place of burnout. And so to whatever extent we can create forums as, as Dr. Wei was describing, you know, peer support, the battle buddy program where people check on each other. And, and even I'll just add a one thing to that, which is when we do encourage those check-ins with folks, knowing that people are not going to be, totally comfortable sharing, we almost have to force it by way of the questions we ask. You know, for example, simply saying like, what, what's hardest for you right now? Or what is your biggest challenge? So that we don't let them out of answering that question. Everybody's dealing with something. So we just need to kind of force them to, to tackle it. 
Uh, and it's it's not easy. And our our leaders and, and even our colleagues who can help with these things are themselves busy with patient care. Uh, but I do think that ultimately those those forums uh, are going to be what have the biggest impact over time on our people, more, more so even than formal mental health resources outside of our, our systems. I agree with both of the doctors, and I think that it's very important to press people a little bit harder than we usually feel comfortable doing, because it is awkward to talk about these things, and it's so much easier to say, no, everything is fine. And I wanted to make two very brief points. First of all, the idea that people are being called healthcare heroes is a very awkward and sometimes weird thing to think about because I don't think we are heroes. We are people who come to work every day and uh, do the best job we can, but we're not perfect. And we often do uh, feel stressed and make mistakes. And the notion of heroes suggests some kind of superhuman powers, and that's completely not what we are. And the second thing is that we try to speak up for science. We speak up for evidence. And oftentimes we feel that we need to take on the folks who don't understand or choose not to understand what's going on. And that's exhausting. I mean, you add that to your daily work and it can be incredibly exhausting. So I want to say that people should feel okay if they feel grumpy or if they feel a little bit frustrated. It's natural to feel those things and it's not something to be shamed about even if you normally feel like you have it together. And those are things, again, that we are all facing each of us individually, but also as a culture and a society. You all raise excellent points, doctors, many of which aren't raised often enough. Thank you for that. The last question I'd like to pose to all of you, in addition to support that can be provided through the healthcare facility, how can those on the front lines support each other more successfully? Dr. Wei, I'll start with you. So there are things that facilities and systems should put in place, like peer support programs, battle buddy initiatives. But I think you know, what can an individual physician or individual nurse do, I think is, is just to admit that this, this is really hard, that what they're feeling, you know, what I'm feeling when I'm in the emergency department, I'm sure there are other people you know, around me who are, who are feeling the, the same things and just be open with whatever you have left to, to reach out to a colleague, to a friend, to a peer uh, and check on them uh, and be open if, if others uh, reach out to you and kind of just actively fight against the stigma and this, this culture that it isn't okay to say that you're, you're being affected. And I've seen a lot of this happen within Elmhurst Hospital, within New York City Health and Hospitals, our entire system, seen amazing peer support, amazing kind of emotional and psychological support that's been organic on the ground, not even through an official program. And I have a lot of people say that, tell me that they felt more comfortable being at work, even when the volumes went down due to the public health measures that were taken in New York City. Uh, and we wanted people to take a break. They're like, no, I feel more supported when I'm here around people who have that shared lived experience that, that I did. I spend more time trying to explain to my family or trying to explain to, to my friends you know, what I was going through and what I was experiencing. And I don't need to do that with another doctor or another nurse uh, that was shoulder to shoulder with me in, in the heat of, of the wave uh, that we experienced here. That's an incredible kind of example of the, the resilience in the family, the, the healthcare family and, and camaraderie that allows us to be resilient and overcome. So how do we 
build upon that and, and make it uh, okay for even more people to, to do this. There are systems, there's there's national policy things that we need to do, but down on the, the, the front lines, just an openness to it. I'll pick up on what Dr. Wei was saying in terms of colleagues supporting one another. Uh, and this is something, uh, if you look at the trauma literature, that really the, the most effective support comes from individuals on the front lines being able to connect and share with, with one another. And so promoting that, and even, I think sometimes even just offering it. So even just knowing that there's peer support available makes a lot of people feel comfortable. One of the things that I think is going to be increasingly important is to promote some of the skills associated with peer support to the masses, which is to say like when you're supporting somebody, you're not solving their problem. You are really just helping facilitate the other person's thinking through what they're challenged with. And so that's something that I'm excited about supporting our frontline folks in as we go forward. The other thing that I'll mention is the practice within the walls of the hospitals of, of, of gratitude uh, in really simple ways. I recently saw a picture, somebody sent me a picture of a hospitalist team that gave an award to a nurse and they give these awards on a, a monthly basis. And uh, the, you know, these are the kinds of things that not only benefit the person who gets the award or whatever acknowledgement they receive um, and could really help keep them going through all this, but you know, it feels, it feels great for the people that are, they're giving that, that acknowledgement. And so with whatever leftover energy folks do have, um, I think some attention to gratitude can really go a long way. These, this is a great conversation because we sometimes don't have the chance to reach out beyond our own peer group. And it's nice to see other people are going through the same issues and being creative around them. And I'll bring this back to my group and make sure that we implement some of these best practices because honestly, we need help from everywhere. And I'm just happy that we're able to have a frank conversation around mental health issues, especially in this time of stress. But I think this will be good moving forward, even after COVID, because these are not problems that are going to go away completely. So thank you for everybody to um, be frank and honest about these things. And I certainly hope to contribute to the conversation again later. At this time, I'd like to open the floor for any final thoughts. Nadia, I'll just pick up uh, on what was just mentioned about that much of this is going to be beneficial going forward. It was much needed in the first place, um, even more needed now. But I think a lot of the changes that we're going to see in regards to these these resources and these practices that that uh, we're discussing here, it's only going to make medicine better. It's only going to make the careers more sustainable. And so it it despite the circumstances, it feels it feels good. And uh, and I am glad that we're able to spend the time on these these issues. I'd like to thank doctors Fekita Way and Rudolph for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org, and tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.